Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the investment and merchant bank for the digital economy. Today, we have a special treat. We've asked Lion Tree's 2019 class of interns to speak about the trends in the tech and media space that they feel are underrepresented in the current dialogue. In part one of this two-part episode, we'll hear about how cloud-based services are empowering musicians, the advent of virtual reality filmmaking, e-commerce's role in driving small business, and generational shifts in technology. We'll also hear an interview with the CEO of a SaaS management firm, a relatively nascent sector. Tune in to hear what tomorrow's business leaders are focused on. My name's Cody Jones. I go to McGill University. I'm going to be a junior next year, and my program is called Honors in Investment Management. Basically, I came into this wanting to talk about SoundCloud and not just SoundCloud, but the whole DIY trend that's been happening in the music industry and how there's a lot more emphasis on any creator being able to reach audiences. For anybody who doesn't know, SoundCloud's a free platform that lets artists essentially spread their music to the world. And as this has been the case, it's completely free. It's allowed them to circumvent labels and reach fans without geographic constraints. And this is another product of the whole digital economy and the fact that people are able to have that outreach from their own homes and the world's more connected than ever before. To put in perspective the value and how big SoundCloud is, it was valued at a post-money valuation of $320 million roughly in its last financing round, 2017, and it has 175 million global monthly users as of March 2019. So that kind of gives an idea of the reach and magnitude that SoundCloud has. And within that, it's estimated to have a community of 20 million music creators. So that's people uploading songs and basically trying to reach their audiences. What's kind of interesting about this that I found was that starting at a very grassroots level has kind of allowed these artists to cultivate brands outside of the control of a corporate environment and be who they want to be, create their own personalities without a focus group effect that maybe some traditionally signed artists might go through with their labels. And as a product of this, the raw energy and the kind of authenticity of a lot of these artists has been a factor that's attracted a lot of their audiences. Being on this platform that allowed them to do it on their own terms, allowed them to go around being discovered through the traditional record label A&R process and getting signed and being promoted that way, they basically disintermediated the traditional music industry, which has put power in their own hands. It's been really interesting looking at that because... The fact that they're able to get around that artists have become more entrepreneurial in nature, not just through SoundCloud, but also by using various social media outlets such as Instagram and Twitter. They've been able to more directly communicate with fans and cultivate that relationship and do it themselves. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I remember Michael Rapino saying that artists are some of the greatest brand managers in the world. And it speaks to the fact that they can cultivate the personality that they want to portray to the world. They know themselves better than anybody else. And it's something that a focus group couldn't create. Another uh, interesting quote that I read in an article recently said that artists are beginning to see themselves more as founders, building a team of marketing and product specialists rather than being able to get all the diverse services they need from one company or label. And I thought that was really interesting because posing an artist not just as an entity to attract fans, but as an entrepreneur 
in control of their own business. It was interesting because that was the first time I'd gotten a chance to think about it that way. Through that entrepreneurial spirit and working on building the brand themselves, through interactions with fans and from the base level, they reached a mainstream status and it allowed them to attract fans in a way that people started to look, not just fans, but also a lot of the big brands. Similar things can be said about YouTube personalities who use that platform to reach their own high status as content creators. By being able to do that, a lot of brands have taken notice and want to associate themselves with that content and with those artists, even though they did it on their own at their own base level. As a product of this, a lot of record labels have also tried to get in on this. So, for example, Lil Pump, a rap artist who originally on SoundCloud signed an $8 million deal with Warner Brothers for a single album in 2018. Also, Chance the Rapper, another notable artist that originated on SoundCloud, had an exclusive distribution agreement with Apple for a period of time for one of his past mixtapes. And this kind of speaks to how not just for corporate brands, but also record labels specifically, a lot of these artists have turned heads, but it wasn't the sort of thing where the artists were discovered, maybe playing in a bar somewhere, but instead by seeing the power that they had to reach fans through the internet. But the difference between now and in previous generations is that the artists don't need the labels to survive, but the labels still need the content for the artists. So it's shifted the power dynamic to a large extent. And this kind of all becomes a feedback loop where artists are able to generate a following and then viral moments just based off of the eccentricity of their personalities. As companies are attracted to this, they want to associate their brands with this viral content, even though it's something that wasn't born out of the boardroom like a lot of previous personalities from other generations of music and just media in general. So for example, Lil Yachty, another artist that originated on SoundCloud, has endorsement deals with Sprite, Nautica, and Target, which are all pretty big corporate entities, but they invested in his personality that he cultivated himself. He's basically been able to monetize who he is. This kind of represents, at a high level, a way that the digital age has allowed a new cultural force to emerge on its own terms through direct connection with fans and without corporate backing, which has resulted in brands seeking to be a part of it. A lot of artists, the way that they've ended up getting famous is maybe not just through their music, but through those publicity stunts, but it's things that they've done themselves and it doesn't necessarily have label backing or like a marketing team behind them. So that's one other change that's happened since moving into the digital age that I thought's really interesting. Those are all the points I wanted to make. My name is Jennifer Chen. I'm a rising senior at the University of Pennsylvania pursuing a dual degree in finance and cinema studies. And today I will be talking about virtual reality and its future in filmmaking. I am a huge fan of VR films and filmmaking. For the past three years, I've been going to the Tribeca Film Festival to see its world-renowned VR exhibit. And I've come to realize how powerful VR as a medium can be, but more so how difficult it is to make a truly impactful and captivating VR film. I actually was on a virtual reality project with some people at my university two summers ago at the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. While we were there, we used a 360 camera to record an unfiltered, immersive experience of the everyday life at the settlement. I think VR is the best tool to evokes empathy in viewers because it literally puts you inside another person's body. But for a filmmaker, it's way harder to make a good film in VR than in 2D. With 2D, you get to control every shot your audience sees 
and you get to shape a coherent narrative through the juxtaposition of shots and movements. But with live action VR, it's nearly impossible to control every corner of the 360 view. And the 360 view can be so distracting for the viewer that it's hard for a director to direct where you want your audience to see. For an audience in the VR film, the experience can really depend on what type of film it is and what direction the director is going with. So if it's a documentary, which is my favorite genre for VR films, you can be just immersed in a totally different setting. You don't have to do anything, but you can turn around 360 and see what's around you. But there are also films that are fictional or video game type. I believe VR filmmaking is in its infancy stage, just like how motion picture was first invented. No one really knew how to use the tool to its full potential. I personally don't think VR will ever replace 2D films because they are just two fundamentally different mediums. I think one thing that can help filmmakers and audiences embrace VR films is an improvement in technology. For example, right now, images through a VR headset could look quite gimmicky. A viewer can't really walk long distances within the setting of the VR environment. Also, from a filmmaker's perspective, it takes a really long time and a lot of capacity to render and export in VR film. In general, as consumers and viewers, we should be aware of the impact that technology can have on us and our subconscious. There's this one film I remember watching where a filmmaker tells the story of how he conquered his fear of swimming with sharks. The film puts the audience in the body of the diver and vicariously you are surrounded by sharks in the ocean. As someone who would normally be afraid of sharks, I found the experience extremely empowering and liberating. Physically being in the body of the narrator made me understand his point of view, his emotions. So I genuinely think VR films, when they're well-made, which is rare nowadays, can evoke a tremendous amount of empathy in viewers because it offers an entryway into another person's life and makes you more open and willing to experience another person's point of view. VR filmmaking is in such an early development stage that there may soon emerge a new wave or movement of filmmakers. I do think VR can have a bigger impact in the documentary space than 2D because it really immerses you in an environment that is real and physically there. With documentary, it's a lot easier for the filmmaker to manipulate your experience. But when you're plopped into a totally different setting, it's harder for the filmmaker to shape what you want to see. So as a viewer, you feel like you have more control over your environment. My name is Kalidosa Skudaya. I go to Fordham University. I'm about to be a senior graduating in May of 2020. What's officially going to be on my diploma is 
global business major with concentrations in global finance and business economics and alternative investments with a minor in Mandarin Chinese, but you can just say I study finance. So I'm about to talk about small businesses and how they interact on e-commerce platforms. I'm going to bring up a statistic right now that won't come up until the end of this podcast, 26%. So just keep that in mind, 26%. First, let's talk about Amazon and Alibaba. Amazon, the world's largest online retailer, what a lot of people might not know is that a significant amount of the revenues actually comes from their third-party vendors. In 2018, 58% of the revenues came from third-party vendors, and Jeff Bezos was more or less ecstatic about it. This is actually the equivalent of over $117 billion in revenue. These vendors obviously include Barnes & Noble, Gillette, Williams-Sonoma, even Staples and HP. But there are an estimated 5 million sellers on Amazon right now, as of 2019. Amazon does report statistics about their vendors. They estimate the average amount of income for small and medium businesses on their platform is more than 90,000. And they state that over 50,000 small and medium businesses generate over 500,000 with over 20,000 making over a million dollars. This is obviously good for Amazon, even though they're losing out on their Amazon basics and all the other things that they sell to the consumer themselves. But they're making money through ad revenue. At the same time, they're making money because ultimately it's on their platform and that's ultimately good for them and even generates uh, more ad revenue because if you see something, it leads to them using their data to essentially heighten their search or recommend something to you. This can help with stuff like Prime Video that they just launched. Next, I actually want to talk about Alibaba, and the reason I want to bring this up is actually last week they announced that they're going to be allowing U.S. businesses to sell on their platform. Alibaba has a network of over 10 million buyers across the globe, across 200 countries, and about a third of this is actually in the United States. Now, you can go on Alibaba's service, and essentially, if you're in Texas, you can sell to Florida, or if you're in San Antonio, you can sell to Houston. This just makes it a lot easier for a company that's maybe less than 100 people to essentially grow its business. The reason I brought up Amazon and Alibaba is because they're obviously the two largest competitors out there. I know Alibaba just started, but they're planning to charge a $2,000 membership fee before any advertising fees. Amazon charges per product and per month. Those are its options. Alibaba's membership fee is going to be annual. Alibaba, actually, this was kind of funny. They took a shot at Amazon when they announced this. They were talking about how when Amazon works with third-party vendors, they collect their data and they use that to essentially improve their search rankings because they have all these keyword searches. They have all the success of what led to a purchase, and they use it to improve the searches and the selling of their own products. This is a pretty fair criticism. Amazon is acting as a competitor to its third-party vendors. Companies are essentially going to have to choose, do you want to sell on Amazon or do you want to sell on another platform that's not competing with you? It's this whole, how much do you value your data thing that we've been talking about. Alibaba isn't the only competition Amazon has to worry about. Facebook is also allowing people to buy and sell things directly through its marketplace service, and it's allowing people to purchase products directly through Instagram. This is obviously going to build ad revenue for Facebook. They're obviously going to collect some form of commission through this, especially in apparel. I can see this taking large chunks of revenue from Amazon because people just absorb so much social media in their day. 
I definitely see Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat just announced that they're going to be working with Shopify, which I'll also talk about later. The big social media players like stealing product revenue from some of these companies and even ad revenue. Let's turn our attention to direct-to-consumer platforms now. A really good case study for a direct-to-consumer is Dollar Shave Club. It was actually just bought out for about a billion dollars. Michael Dublin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, he talks about how his inspiration for the company was just the inefficiency of the razor market. But it's also a good example of the demand for the direct-to-consumer business model because you could buy razors on Amazon or eBay prior to Dollar Shave Club. But because Dollar Shave Club only sold razors, they only sold this one product, they were allowed to lower their price points. So now they could compete with Gillette and Procter and & Gamble. And this isn't the only case of someone selling a single product and leveraging the economies of scale to build out a successful business. You can look at Warby Parker, which sells glasses, and you can look at Casper, which sells sleeping products. You also look at Harry's, which is essentially in the same business as Dollar Shave Club, where they only sell facial products and grooming products. While these companies do have billion-dollar valuations, there are small companies that sell single product, especially in the apparel space. You can go to tons of places that only sell shoes, only sell purses or bags, and they're all local. A big emerging market is software and services for e-commerce and online retail. Going back to Amazon, there's even software that's tailored to its platform. There's a company that's called Gradient. It raised about $3.5 million last year. It uses artificial intelligence to improve companies' search rankings on Amazon. And that's actually been for a while. Search engine optimization, we've had that for a while. But we have had software that's specifically tailored to companies like Amazon. And it's been a big thing with Google. But this is actually something that's going to come up more and more. There's even a company called Cartograph, which literally does the same thing. It um, improves your search rankings on Amazon, but it does that just for food as more and more people order food online. There are about 28 million small businesses in the U.S. Now I'd like to go back to the statistic I brought up in the beginning. So I said 26%. The reason I mentioned 26% is about only 26% of small businesses in the U.S. have an e-commerce platform. That leaves about 20 million small businesses that don't. Obviously, the number's never going to hit 100%. Like, it just doesn't make logistical sense for some people, or it makes more logistical sense for other people. But there are going to be instances where if you want to compete with a large retailer or even someone across the country or even globally, you're going to have to build out an e-commerce platform. It's not going to be these big companies. It's going to be these smaller ones that offer very niche or very specific products to essentially tailor their solution to a broader market. Small business is about to disrupt online retail. My name is Victoria Boning. I go to Penn and I study finance and business economics and public policy. I'm a junior about to be a senior. Today I'm discussing generational shifts in technology. Just to backtrack a little bit, the tech industry has been an area of extreme growth. And it's growth that's going to continue for the next few years. Right now, the tech industry is worth several trillion dollars. Some people say five trillion. Some people say up to 11 trillion dollars. And by 2025... It's predicted to be responsible for around 24% of global GDP. But sometimes these trends in consumer tech products are hard to understand. They rely on a super technical computer science foundation, 
And then there are the generational gaps, which honestly I think are quite natural given the industry's rapid evolution. So I'm curious to understand how generational values influence consumption habits and specifically how evolution and adoption in tech is influenced by these consumer differences. To start off with, the baby boomer generation was characterized by excessive consumerism. Think the era of Coca-Cola, Woodstock, the Beatles, TVs, and cars, which is reflected by this generation's somewhat idealist, collectivist, and patriotic values. Then came Gen X, and they consumed what's known as status, brands, luxury, and MTV. And this is a result of their individualistic, materialistic, and entrepreneurial values. And that was reflected by the time period they lived in. They lived through Watergate, the energy crisis, and shifting societal values. Then came along Gen Y, the millennial generation, which was known to consume experiences, think festivals and travels, given their globalist and questioning values in a digital age marred by terrorism. Now my generation, Gen Z, is comprised of digital natives. We were the first to grow up with internet and smartphone technology. And as a result, our behavior is reflected by this. We're constantly evaluating tons and tons of information in what people call a search for truth, with a lot of opportunity for individual expression. Think of all the apps we have access to and all the individualistic spirit we can show through these apps. This means that causes for us around identity are very important. In addition, Gen Z mobilizes for a variety of causes. And because of so much technology out there, this mobilization is high. So why are tech-focused consumption habits of Gen Z important? Well, we're currently 20% of the country's population. And studies estimate a range of 40 to 150 billion U.S. dollars of buying power. And in a few years, we'll be the largest generation of consumers. An interesting point here is that today, when technology is adopted, it usually goes through Gen Z first. So on the product adoption bell curve, Gen Z can usually be characterized as the early adopters. So how do Gen Z's values impact the kinds of products we're interested in? Well, one group of products can be represented by unlimited consumption, the subscription model, like Netflix or Stitch Fix. Studies have shown that Gen Z values the product variety of subscription models over gaining exclusive access or saving time and money. Another group of products is reflected in Gen Z's individualistic spirit. Apps like Instagram, the YouTube platform Brat, and TikTok allow for individual expression and have reduced the separation between audiences and celebrities. This we can see in the rise of influencers on Instagram, which has given rise to a whole new sector of marketing. Finally, Gen Z prefers personalized products. This is reflected in the growth of omnichannel retail, companies integrating their brick-and-mortar stores with e-commerce operations, leading to a more personalized shopping experience with a greater variety of products. Companies can use these channels to create unique shopping experiences with new technologies. For example, chatbots powered by artificial intelligence. And that brings me to the implications these new generational values have on companies. In the context of new players constantly evolving in this field and legacy players trying to keep up with industry trends, firstly, companies can leverage direct relationships and new distribution channels. Consumption is now understood as a means of access rather than possession. So how can a company think of creative ways to sell its products within this framework? Well, a company can work within the collaborative consumption and gig economy, which today is well represented by the platform Etsy or use subscription models or marketplace models with direct access to consumers. 
Secondly, companies can develop personalized products, as Gen Z customers are willing to pay a premium for these. As I touched on earlier, consumption is now understood as an expression of individual identity. And to complement this, companies can use a new two-track model of combining scale and mass consumption with agility and flexibility for a high-reach, personalized experience. This can be done by leveraging advanced analytics for a better consumer experience, thereby creating value to both the customer and the supplier. Thirdly, brands should take a stand. Gen Z sees consumption as a matter of ethical concern. Out of the four generations I mentioned earlier, Gen Z individuals are most likely to spend more for a product if a brand promotes environmental, gender equality, LGBT, or racial justice initiatives. This ethical marketing can be achieved through influencers, individuals that represent the brand's values. Finally, advertising techniques evolve with these new preferences. Gen Z uses TV less than other generations, and instead, Gen Z individuals use their smartphones and find out about new products on social media. So companies should ensure they focus advertising here as well. So what's next? Some speculate that virtual reality will gain traction. Think of companies like Wayfair and Ikea that are using apps with virtual reality technology where you can download the app, take a picture of your home, and insert a mirror from the app onto your wall to see what it looks like before you purchase. Or companies like Disney that are increasingly using virtual reality in their customer experience. It's been fascinating to see how companies are already embracing Gen Z's values and aligning themselves and their products with these trends. My name is Alex Glaubach. I go to the University of Chicago and I study economics. I'm going to be a fourth year there. Today's podcast is titled Tectonic Tech, a discussion with the founder. I'm going to be speaking about tectonic plates and the ability of an earthquake in the tech industry to evolve into many markets. The tech innovation is the shift from storing data locally to the cloud through the web or internet. The market that evolved as a result of the tech innovation is selling software services through the cloud. Not only that, but the revenue model revolutionized to fit the cloud storage model. Software providers changed how they charge. They moved from a salesperson selling you their software in-house with a one-time installation fee that covered the bulk of the total price and then a maintenance fee every once in a while to an over-the-internet sale at a relatively lower recurring price that you charge generally on a monthly basis. This makes for more adopters because it's cheaper to be a first-time user and free trials can be easily offered over the internet. It also makes for more recurring revenue that you can reliably predict based on user acquisition rate, churn rate, and existing user base. There have been direct effects of the proliferation. 15 years ago in 2004, Salesforce became the first fully cloud-based SaaS company to go public. As of just 2017, over 60 SaaS businesses have followed in their footsteps. 2018 was the year of the SaaS IPO, where of the 40 tech companies to go public, over a third of them were SaaS, 16 to be exact. Some big names you've probably heard of are DocuSign, SurveyMonkey, and Dropbox. What I'm going to focus on is the unintended consequences of SaaS proliferation and the indirect market that formed as a result. One of the unintended consequences is shadow IT. The inability for internal IT to keep track of managing the license's spend, compliance, and usage data from budget owners to renewal dates. Imagine a company that employs 5,000 people or more 
and each individual is purchasing cloud-based SaaS without IT's knowledge and then forgetting about their licenses or not using them at all. They might even purchase software that's a perfect substitute and be paying for both licenses. This is an example of shadow IT. IT managers have also been unable to unlock visibility into assets with access to sensitive data and information. As a result of SaaS proliferation, there's been an explosion of SaaS management platforms. Platforms to centralize SaaS licenses and all of their accompanying information to help IT and finance teams manage their SaaS across the enterprise and ensure actual utilization. This indirect effect of SaaS proliferation has transformed into a market itself, what I call a technological transformation rippling through other tectonic plates. I'm sitting here with the co-founder and CEO of Intello, Barack Kaufman, that is one of the first movers of the indirect effect market that I previously discussed. Welcome, Barack. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with telling everyone a little bit about yourself and the origins of Intello and how it was founded. For sure. Thank you for having me here, Alex. So my name is Barack. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Intello. We're a SaaS management platform. So you can think of us as this meta layer of visibility across all of an organization's software spend, usage, and compliance data. I started Intello two and a half years ago, January of 2017. Prior to Intello, I worked for a number of years at a investment firm called Inside Venture Partners, one of the largest enterprise software investors in the world. They've got just under $30 billion in capital under management. 90% of those investments are focused on enterprise software. So you get a, a firsthand look at software and SaaS proliferation and the growth of it. And that experience really led me to Intello and, and what we're doing today. That's great. That's really helpful. So where we actually started was recognizing that every company that we spoke to, whether it was a portfolio company of the firm I used to work at or, or someone else that we would meet, they were managing all of their SaaS applications in spreadsheets, the way that most of us still manage it today. They didn't just have one spreadsheet. They had 10 spreadsheets spread across different teams and different geographies and different locations. And each one of them had a list of hundreds of different software tools and 50 columns where they would keep track of all of this data manually. And we realized step one in being able to solve the issues with SaaS management today is getting visibility, identifying first and foremost, what are all those software applications so that the IT and InfoSec teams and the CIO's division within the company can have this granular insights into what are their different teams and departments purchasing. When we realize that that is the problem that we need to start with, that's what we built Intello to solve. And what we do is we provide that visibility into all of those software-related assets, all of the software subscriptions, all of the usage data across all those different applications, the Salesforce license usage, but also the long tail as you were describing the shadow IT, which I'm happy to talk more about. And then the third piece is compliance, right? Nowadays, there's tons of new compliance regulation. There's everything from GDPR to CCPA. And if you don't know where your data is stored and what those systems are, it can actually be compliant. So what would you say based on all of the customers that you've been servicing and the market you've been seeing, would you say is more of an issue? And maybe if you could give some rough percentages between spend and compliance. Yeah, absolutely. When we got started, interestingly, we were entirely focused on the spend problem. That was what we at least recognized early on. You have 
these redundancies. You have so many software subscriptions. You're often paying for licenses you don't need. The stat that's out there in the market, and apologies, I don't, I don't remember the source, but it's 30% of software spends wasted on unused applications and unused licenses. Now, if you look at the total amount of enterprise software spend in the market, I think it's something like $300 billion today. If you look at the, the SaaS portion of that, that's about $70 billion, projected to hit about $100 billion of annual SaaS spend, cloud spend in the next year. So it's growing. It's the largest share of the growing market. If you take the percentages on that, it's, it's pretty significant. And early on, we were just pitching finance. We we're like, hey, how are you managing these software applications? They're all subscription-based. They all have their own renewals. They all have their own licenses. How do you keep track of it? And they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, no, I, we don't have a good way. We have so many meetings that I wish I could eliminate. This product sounds great. And then we ran into an issue. While this was a problem, it was very hard for them to prioritize. And often what would happen is we'd then get introduced from a senior person on the finance team to a senior person on the IT team. They're like, hey, Brock, I know I was really excited about this, but the truth is this IT director has my full accountability and responsibility over managing the spend and all those other components. And then working with them, we realized that spend is a problem, but an equally large, if not larger problem is the shadow IT problem, is the security and compliance side, specifically around what's happening in the world and the market. And that's becoming a, a bigger objective to be able to solve for enterprises. So if you look at our customers today, our new customers today, I'd say 60, 65% find this because they're looking to solve the problem around shadow IT, compliance, security, and about 40, 35% are looking for more spend optimization. Going forward with the SaaS management platform, are you seeing a lot of new entrants entering the space? I think it's really interesting if you look at our market. If I put on my old investor hat for a second and take a more objective look, there are very few markets that are truly what I refer to as greenfield white space. And basically the idea is that you're not replacing an existing solution. It's truly a net new software product, which has its own challenges from a selling perspective as a new software buyer, it's great to evangelize a market and dictate what it looks like. But that's challenging because there is an earmarked budget. There isn't this idea and notion that, oh, I needed this. So let me go look for it. It's like, oh, I need this. So let me go figure out what we can do internally because they've never heard of a solution. So there's challenges that come with it. Most of the new spend is going to the few of us, but it's still really small. It's still being created in real time. And I do hear occasionally of new companies entering or thinking about entering the space as well. I think it becomes harder. The more years you have behind you of R&D and customer feedback, the harder it is for a new entrant to really come in and compete. One last question. For all of those founders out there listening, what was your aha moment when you realized visibility is this real issue that IT managers, finance teams really need to unlock and transferring that to their experiences? I'm not sure that there was a real aha moment for us. And I'm not sure that for most founders, there has been or will be. For me, there was a little bit of that aha moment when I was still working at the investment firm I used to work at. And we'd talk to a lot of the customers and buyers of different software solutions. And you'd ask them, how are they finding these solutions? And you'd hear word of mouth and conferences and sales reps reaching out to them and the analyst community and things like that. But there's different level of like bias with all of them. And that started getting me down this path originally from an investing angle where ultimately I recognize this problem on the SaaS management side. But it took that mini aha moment, light bulb, and then a bunch of work to actually recognize where that real problem was, where the actual painkiller was. There's the painkiller versus vitamin analogy. You really want to find a painkiller if you're going to try to 
build a product, build a big, big venture back business. Now at the same time, it's still evolving. Those challenges are still changing as we spoke about. So visibility, we probably recognized early on when we built it and then had those conversations with the different IT managers, but there wasn't one specific conversation. You need multiple areas of validation from different angles, not even just from customers, but from potential partners in the space and synergies to be able to actually know you're onto something. And the biggest advice I can give is don't hide or, or shy away from sharing your idea. Idea is not really worth much. It's all about execution. And if you're hesitant or scared to actually talk about it in those early days, it's probably not that defensible. An idea itself isn't that defensible. And it's pretty rare that you find some really innovative technology platform that no one else is going to be able to build that's like fully defensible. So share your idea, specifically if it's enterprise software, to be able to validate and improve and validate and improve and validate and improve, then ultimately hone in on what you're actually building and stick to it. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's really valuable advice for founders. I think that wraps things up, but thanks a lot, Barack, for coming on. Uh, we appreciate your words of wisdom. Thanks a <laughs> Thank lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.